3: Welcome to Backstory Song. I'm your host, Doug Burke, and today we're here with Jim McBride. Nashville songwriter, Hall of Famer, Jim McBride grew up in Huntsville, Alabama, obsessively listening to the radio, which his parents kept on throughout the day, and singing in church. He was supporting his family working for the U.S. Postal Service in his young 30s when his first chart-topping song, A Bridge That Just Won't Burn, by Conway Twitty, reached number two on the charts. On the day after Christmas 1980, he gambled on his songwriting career and quit the post office and moved to Nashville. In Nashville, he met a young singer, Alan Jackson, who was looking for a record deal, and the two paired up, and the rest is history. 100 album cuts, 10 top 10 singles, and six number ones later, Jim McBride has been showered with industry awards and his songs are on over 60 million albums sold.
0: I threw away the picture Of those better days in Dallas But I can't throw away These pictures in my mind No, oh, no She's a page
2: of precious
0: memories I've tried hard to turn. He's standing on a bridge that just won't burn. If only time will heal the hurt, then this may last forever. I may never.
3: Tell me about the backstory and the inspiration for a Bridge That Just Won't Burn.
1: Roger, around the early 1970s, had, had moved to Nashville. He was single, and I was married and had a couple of kids. And so Roger made the move up, up here from Alabama for Bobby Bear. He was writing for Bobby Bear. I had gotten discouraged and had put my guitar in the closet for like three years. But I couldn't take it any longer. I was still getting all these ideas, so I got the. About the time I got the guitar out, Roger had left Nashville, and now he was back in Nashville after three or four years, and he's writing for Foster and Rice. We we had written some together. There was a little studio in Huntsville, Alabama, and, at, and Rogers from about twenty miles away in Athens, and we had met there. And he said, "Do you want to? you want to write some again?" And I said, "Yeah, I I just started." So Roger would come down. To see his uh, girlfriend in Alabama on Sunday, and then he would come by my house on Sunday night and we would write, and we got this song started at my house, and I believe I, I went to Nashville the next week, or later that week, and we finished it. By this time, I was way into it. I had heard good old boys like me, and it's like, you know what, I don't know if I can ever write anything like that, but... I'm 33 years old. I, I really need to. It's I'm going to have to do it sooner. It'll be too late. Bobby, Bobby Bear had uh, offered me a deal for $50 a week, and I said, Bobby, man, I really appreciate that because I, I, I really respect you, but I've got a wife and family, and, and I've got a government job. I make pretty good money carrying mail, you know? And I said, I, I can't live on $50 a week. Fast forward, that's when I got discouraged. I tried to transfer to Nashville with the post office, and then I would be here at least, and the postmaster turned me down, and I said, well, someday I'll leave, and you won't have anything to say about it. I'll just leave. Fast forward a few years, and, and Conway Twitty heard A Bridge That Just Won't Burn, and he recorded it. I made myself a promise. I said, "If if this song goes to number one, if it's a big hit like all the Conway songs, then I'm going to quit the post office and and move to to Nashville if I can get a deal. So Roger Comedy he said, "Hey, pack your bags, it's it's going to be his next single." So it only went to number two, and I thought I'll never get another Conway cut. <laughs> but I got I got at least three more uh, over the years. You know, Conway would listen to two thousand songs sometimes, around two thousand songs. And he would pick ten. So if you got on a Conway Twitty album, that was a, that was a big deal. And he personally listened to those songs. He didn't have someone. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've gone out to Twitty City before, which I love to do, and go out and uh, sit with him and play songs for him. But yeah, he would. Uh, he says he would personally listen to maybe two thousand songs, out of which he would pick ten. So just to just to get a Conway cut was a pretty big deal. <laughs> And I thought, oh my god, didn't go make it. But you moved um, anyway. Yeah, I moved anyway. I quit the post office and moved to Nashville. Uh, started to work for Foster and Rice. First day of January 1981, and I had a little office. It was about four by four. I could get my guitar in there. And that was about it. But hey, I was on Music Row, and I had one year guaranteed at I believe eighteen thousand dollars, and I had made twenty seven thousand dollars carrying mail the year before. And so it was quite a gamble, but luckily, while I was still in Alabama, I'd written a song called Bet Your Heart on Me, and Johnny Lee cut it after I'd been in town three or four months, and before the year was out, I think about November, it went number one. So that bought me a couple more years at a slightly higher pay raise. So that was my my first hit and Roger's first hit. So
3: on a bridge that just won't burn, did Bobby Bear pass on the song?
1: No, this was this was the second time Roger came to town. No, Bobby did not. He did not pass on the song. So
3: he went straight to Conway Twitty. And, I think
1: I think and he's yeah, the th- first one to hear it. And what they would do, Bill Rice and Jerry Foster had an office in the uh, UA Tower on Seventeenth, and and Conway and. Uh, Mickey Gilly and and folks like that, they would go out to dinner and come back to the office late at night and listen to songs. Foster and Ross would play them songs out of the catalog. So Conway heard it and and recorded it. So all all of this time, while the in 1981, when I moved to Nashville, my mom, her cancer had uh, had come back the latter part of 1980, and and so the day we buried her was the night of the BMI awards. And that's a big deal. If you're a songwriter and you're getting an award and it was my first performance award, I had, I had not given any thought. I didn't rent a tux or anything. My mother was, was dying and and passed away and we had the funeral and taking care of everything. And, and uh, so it, it was just out of, you know, totally out of my mind at the time. So, After the the ceremony, uh, we were still at the cemetery and my dad said, I want you to go, I want you to go to Nashville and get that award tonight. And I said, Dad, I don't have a tux. Uh, I haven't made any plans to go. And he said, No, if you can, if you can do it. So I got a couple of, uh, got a couple of cousins to drive me up. I I managed to uh, find a tuxedo, ill-fitting tuxedo. At the last minute in Huntsville, and they drove me up, and uh, and I went to the award show. You talk about bittersweet, Doug. That was we had just married my mom, and now I'm getting an award that songwriters that cherish and desire to, to get. And but she had known that you'd gotten the award. Yes, yeah, she knew I was getting one. And and the other thing is Conway came to town while the singer was out. She had lost her hair, but she. Was wearing a wig and she, you know, she, she stayed dressed up just as long as she could. And so she got to go see Conway and meet Conway. And sing your went, song. Went to the show. Yeah, she got to see him sing, sing my song. So that, that was cool.
3: That is a nice story.
2: Raised in the shadows of an old cotton mill Back when believing was a style Small town heaven and a big-eyed boy Made sweet music for a while My daddy worked hard down at the factory nights he went to GI school He didn't know nothing about the silver spoon, but he lived by the golden rule. Summer nights he was gone, me and mama stayed home, out on the front porch swing. Wishing on the stars in the southern sky, and sometimes we
1: You want to talk about Dixie Boy? Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to. That people say, what's well, your favorite song you've ever written? And When I started back writing in 1978, uh, I wanted to write a song for my mom and dad and about my life growing up. Boy, I, it should have been real easy, but some of it just, i I wanted it to be as perfect as I, you know, I wanted it to be perfect or near perfect. So it took me a long time. I had a demo session scheduled in Nashville with Foster and Rice before I I moved here. I wanted to get it on that session, so I gave Bill Rice the list of songs, and and I said, there's one more called Dixie Boy that I want to play, and I still liked one line. And I spent the night in the hotel, and I I finally got that line that night, and I showed it to him the next morning, and he said, yeah, we got to do that. That was when you knew
3: the lyrics were done, and you (laughs) weren't going to have to edit them any longer, and prior to that, you'd been picking it up and putting it down, or or you yeah. had started it and picked it up again. How did the
1: prior I, to that? I'd pick it up, and and uh, there were two or three lines that, you know, that I just couldn't get, and finally I got a couple of them, but I was down to that last line, and I thought it's going to break my heart if I don't get that line, and I got it, and I was happy with it. I wouldn't have just chosen. And what was that? Line? Anything? Uh, you know, I don't remember which one it was anymore. As much as I worried about but, it. The odd thing about that was Don Williams just had good old boys like me, and I guess that was one thing that inspired me to to write that song. But back in the day, I smoked a lot, and I had a real uh, deep voice, and everybody thought I was trying to get a Don Williams cut. So it just kind of went on the shelf. Don, obviously Don wasn't going to do it after doing that great song. kind of went on the shelf, and then uh, a lady at the publishing company played it for a uh, Randy Owen, and they recorded it. And of course, that was the same album that had Dixie Landy Light on it. I didn't get a single, but it sold five million copies, and it was the album of the year, the CMA album of the year. So, kind of like having a single. A lot of people listened to that song. Yeah, I, I've I've gotten a lot of uh, a lot of people have mentioned that song to me. But it was nice. My mom got to hear me sing it, but she never got to hear. She didn't get to hear alabama so it went straight to alabama didn't
3: get chopped to anyone else mm.
1: no I think randy it
3: heard it and said this is our our material yep. this is where we came from
1: they associated enough with it they were raised up on lookout mountain about 60 miles somewhere i was born and raised where that, you're
3: talking about this
1: yeah national geographic was doing a a book a hardcover book called valleys of america and they did one on wills valley it's down from the mountain where Teddy and, and Randy lived. And they actually quoted some of those lyrics in that hardcover book. Thing about it is, I made twenty five dollars and I spent like two hundred dollars buying books <laughs> for my friends and family. You know, it's like, uh, this is probably not gonna happen again. Yeah, I, I kinda went in the hole on that, but it was cool to be it's cool to be in the, in there. Yeah, when I play out, I usually do that song. A lot of times I'll do it first just to say this is kind of where i this is where I came from, you know. Oh, one other thing. A lot of the younger kids, uh, I, I did a show at an Opryland Hotel the other day, and I can, I've gotten where I can kind of judge the crowd, and, and I said, uh, how many of you guys know who Say Hey Willie is? And every guy in the room raised their hand, and I said, okay, you, these are my people, because Randy asked me about that. I said, "People think I'm talking about Willie Nelson." He said, "I knew who you were talking about. It's Willie Mays." Uh, A lot of these younger kids don't know who Willie Mays is. Who do they think? Say, "Hey, Willie is Willie Nelson." Willie Nelson. Okay. And it's like, I don't want to have to explain that every before I play. Yeah, no, it's a generational thing. It's a generational thing. Yep.
3: Now, so where does Dixie Boy play in the Alabama, um, you know, performance? It's a pretty much a
1: the standard, right? They, they used to play it some when the album was out, uh-huh. but because it, because it wasn't a single, they didn't, they, they didn't play it that much, no. But that's okay.
3: we got to get them to play it more.
1: Yeah. My daddy
0: want a radio. He tuned it to a country show. I was rocking in the cradle to the crying of a steel guitar. Mama used to sing to me, she taught me that sweet harmony Now she worries because she never thought I'd ever really take it this far. Singing in the bars and chasing that neon rainbow, living that honky tonk dream was all I've ever. To pick his guitar and sound Just trying to be somebody Just want to be heard and sing I'm chasing that neon rainbow Living that honky-tonk dream An atlas and a coffee cup Five pickers and an old Dodge truck Heading down to Houston Vars show on Saturday night. Well, this overhead is killing me. At the time I sink free. When the crowds into it, Lord, it makes the thing I'm doing seem right.
2: Standing in the
3: chasing that neon rainbow. Yeah. <laughs> that's uh, that, That's like when you come from Alabama to go to the big city, huh?
1: Yeah, that's kind of a composite. It's mostly about the life Allen was living at the time, but there's a lot of mine in there, too. I mean, we didn't have a television until I was eight years old, and so I still have that old Philco table model radio, and I still listen to the Grand Ole Opry on it sometimes. Of course, there's no FM. It's just AM and broadcast, but it's an old tube, and it sounds great. But that's what I grew up listening to the first seven or eight years. I was coming back from Georgia. It was two or three years before I even had ever heard of Alan Jackson, knew who he was, or anybody else. But I got this idea, and I pulled over to the side of the road, and I wrote down, chasing that neon rainbow, living that honky-tonk dream. Well, I had never played in a band, and I never did a solo act at the coffee house or anywhere else. As a matter of fact, I didn't do a writer's night for nine years after I'd had a, after I moved to Nashville, until Kix Brooks talked me into it one night. Were you nervous? Oh yeah, I said Kix, it scares me to death to think about it, man. I said I've never played like that, and and he said, hey, I'm the MC. He said I'll get you, I'll get you the sympathy thing going, you know, and say this is this is Jim's first time, y'all be nice, and I dropped about three picks. I think during the time, but that's when I started getting over it. Thank you, Kicks, for helping me helping me do that because I've gotten to go a lot of cool places because I was willing to play them. But I'd had that idea in a notebook for about two years. All writers keep notebooks with ideas in there, and I knew what it was about, but I didn't. I'd never done that, so I get a phone call from this guy named Alan Jackson, and. I'd seen him at the office a couple of times and just kind of nodded. And uh, I thought, dang, he looks like Hank Williams or something. You know? <laughs> and he said, uh, would, would you be willing to get with me and see if maybe we could write something? And I said, yeah, we'll do that. So we were writing in the old combine building up on the third floor. It was a little room that you could barely stand up in. It got hot up there. As a matter of fact, the fire marshal said, "Don't be up there. It's a, it's a fire <laughs> hazard. Don't. You nobody. No one needs to be up there." But I mean, we couldn't stay away. It's where Christofferson used to write. When he wrote at the office, he wrote in this little room. Well, you can't keep us out of there. You know, <laughs> we're
3: it's, trying to channel
1: Christopherson. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wrote about eighty practice songs before I ever did anything, trying to write like Christofferson. Finally, figured out I was got. I couldn't. So I remember the first day we got together, it was, it was hot up there. So we opened the window, and to get try to get a little air stirring, we we opened the door, and the door wouldn't stay open. But there was a box of trophies there. And we got one of those ACM trophies, if you remember what they looked like with the cowboy hat on or whatever. It was one of Chris's trophies. <laughs> so we propped the door open with one of Chris's trophies. That's funny, yeah. And uh, and so we started talking. Alan's from uh, Georgia. I'm from Alabama. We we liked Hank Williams, Vargas and George Jones. We loved the same music, and so we hit it off immediately. And and he's telling me about driving down to Florida with the band and to Arkansas on the weekends and places, and and not making any money. But he said by the time I buy gas for the van and uh, and pay the band, I'm not making any money. And he said I've been in town. For four or five years and nobody would give me a record deal. I think everybody had turned him down at that point. So I said, I've got an idea I want to show you. I, I haven't known what to do with it, but you're talking about it right now, I think. And so that's how we wrote Chasing That Neon Rainbow. So you laid out that title. He said something about his daddy had won a radio. And so that's just how we started. That's the first line of the song. It's like, well, let's just Let's just tell your story. And in doing so, there's a little bit of mine in there too, moving to Music Row and all that. So yeah, that's that's how that started. The Country Music Hall of Fame wanted to put Alan's radio that he sings about in the song. The he,
3: actual radio. The actual from... radio.
1: So uh he called me and he said, Man, he said, they're putting Daddy's radio in the Country Music Hall of Fame and it's gonna be a ceremony, which of course you're invited to, but they want the original lyrics. And I don't have them. He said, do you have the original lyrics on it? And I said, yeah, I do. And he said, well, bring them or call them and tell them that you've got them. So I called and and I said, look, this is kind of embarrassing. I said, I write with a a large legal pad. And I said, the lyrics to that song are on four different sheets of paper. And I, I said, there's basically uh, verses on, on a separate sheet and then the chorus and they said, "If you change one thing, we don't want it. If you do anything different uh, to it, we don't want it." And I said, "Okay, I, I won't. Yeah. I won't touch it." So I don't know if the lyrics are still in there, but for a long time, Alan's radio in a glass thing, and the lyric, the lyrics on four big yellow pieces of paper are in there with it. It may not, may not be there anymore. But you see. Doug, you see these things where it's where they wrote uh, God Bless America or something, you know, big song, and there's like no scratch out. It's just written straight through where there's one little. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like they're apparently a lot smarter than me. Yours is on four different sheets. Oh, I'm all and... over it. By the time I finished the song, uh, you write down all the pertinent things. If you're singing about cars, you write down all the pertinent things about cars I can think of just over in the margin and then, you know hopefully you get a line or something out of it but yeah some of those things are just a little bit too perfect or they'll have one little scratch up you know it's like uh yeah right
3: that's not how that song was written
1: no one writes a song that way no no that doesn't happen very <laughs> boy alan any time ever took an idea to him or something i'd started if he liked it he would uh, he could certainly hold up his end of the writing part so that song ended up on his first album it went to number two. Yeah, it didn't go to number one. It went to number two, I think. Back in those days, there's Billboard, there was R and R, and there was Cashbox. And I believe that song went number one in R and I'm not okay. sure. Okay. Do
3: you get a number one party for an R and R number one, or only a number one party oh, if, oh, it's a, if it's a Billboard listen. number one?
1: Oh, listen. Yes, they love to have number one parties on Music Row. And yes, if it was R&R, absolutely. Did you have a number one party for Chasing Uh, I think think we did, yeah. On
3: Rainbow. That would tell me if it was a number one. If someone threw you a number one party. Yeah. So Alan Jackson had a pretty good career after that album and that song.
1: Yeah, you know, of course we became friends, and and he gave me a, a copy. And I heard this song on there called Here in the Real World, and I thought, oh, man, Randy, Travis had already kind of kicked the door down, you know, traditional music and I thought, wow, that song is awesome. So his first single didn't do so well, but then they put out here in the real world and that got it that got it going. And each subsequent single kinda of kicked it up.
3: Alan went on to record a bunch of your material someday. Yeah. You can't have it all. Tropical depression.
1: Sometimes it just really works, and, and all of those songs are co-written. He cut a Christmas song of mine, I'll tell you this story. He he cut a Christmas song that I had written by myself, and he calls me one morning about 7 o'clock, and he said, Hey, you got a copy of that Christmas song I like and that you wrote? And I said, Yeah. He said, Bring it down to the studio. He said, I'm doing a Holly Jolly Christmas for Home Alone 2.
3: What's that called?
1: There's just something about Christmas. It never got out. It's still in okay, the, yeah, no, It's still in a can somewhere on Music Row. We got to
3: get that out there, don't the you ball. think?
1: Oh, i love I, yeah, we've got some other things in the can that Like every year that, that should
3: come out. It, it, What's all that stuff doing in the can?
1: Oh gosh, you wouldn't believe all I've got. I've got I've got cuts in the can by in one month period. i lost two Travis Trick cuts, one Brooks and Dunn and one Alan Jackson cut in the period of a month. That's
3: like an album. Like, yeah. someone could release that yeah. as an entire uh, album. Dan like, uh,
1: Murray, I mean, you name it. I, I have a George Jones-Brenda Lee duet that's still in the can. I have a Jerry Lee Lewis cut that I got my first year in town that's still in the can. I mean, that would just kill you. So what I did, I had a tape of it, a cassette, a while back. I took it to this guy, and he put it on a CD, and I took it to the disc jockey down home that played my first record on the radio. I gave it to him. I said, no other disc jockey anywhere has this song. You're the only one who has it. He just plays it to death. <laughs> so maybe i get a little something out of it, you know. But, oh, yeah, any writer that's, that's had success will have these same stories. You get excited because Ann Murray cuts your song, and then you find out she's changing direction in the middle of the album.
3: Out of all your on-the-shelf songs, and some of your on-the-shelf stuff has obviously been cut by major voices, Uh, out of all the ones you've written, if you could pick a voice today to record one, what would it be? And who would the voice be? Well,
1: I almost got a George Strait cut one time. He took 13 songs into the studio. He cut 12 songs. He cut 11 songs. He threw one out and took the 12th song and and put it in its place. And I was good on number 13. So that's as close as ever came getting a straight cut. I, I would love to have had a straight cut, but even more than that, I wish I had gotten, I'd love to have had a Vern Gostin cut. I would love that. Today, I, I, I guess I'd say George.
3: Would you like him to do that song that you had? What what was the song?
1: The number thirteen cut? Uh, you know, I don't remember. I think <laughs> okay. I think I've intentionally blacked You blacked that one I out. Blacked out yeah, I think I I just blocked that in my in my memory. Yes.
0: Hotter than a hoochie coochie, we laid rubber on the Georgia asphalt. We got a little crazy, but we never got caught. Down by the river on a Friday night, pyramid of cans in the pale moonlight. Talking about cars and dreaming about women. Never had a plan, just living for the minute. Yeah, way down yonder on the You Never knew how much that muddy water meant to me But I learned how to swim and I learned who I was A lot about living and a little about love Well, we fogged up the windows in my old Chevy I was willing, but she wasn't ready. So I settled for a burger and a grape snow cone. I dropped her off early, but I didn't go home. Down by the river on a Friday night, a pyramid of cans in
3: the pale moonlight. So Someday with Alan Jackson goes to number one in, in 1991. Who Says You Can't Have It All goes to number four. You co-wrote both of them with him. Yeah. You guys must have had a real... Uh, Chemistry going. We, we did. What, we well, had Tell Doug, me what that was like.
1: I had two notebooks, Doug. I had one that I kept ideas in, and then I had an Alan Jackson notebook. If I got an idea I thought Alan would like, then that went in this notebook, so that I didn't pull it out if I happened to be writing with someone else. So you're you're constantly
3: writing songs with two notebooks. What's the criteria in this time period? that puts it in the Allen Jackson notebook? Like, okay, that song's an Allen song.
1: That's not a George Strait or, yeah. you know, someone else, that's Bobby a,
3: Bear or whoever else
1: you were trying to pitch, Conway Twitty. I don't know. I, I would just have a feeling. I, I just knew, man. I just knew if it was an idea or whatever that he would like it. I never took him one idea that he didn't like, that we didn't finish. I think we finished every single song and most of them, Most of them ended up, you know, on the albums at least.
3: So probably the biggest song you wrote together was Chattahoochee. Yeah.
1: Tell us about that. Oh, boy. Bobby Berry had told me years before, he said, you know, you can't sit down and say, I'm going to write a standard today. I'm going to write a song that's going to be around for 50 years. You might or you might not. Chances are you won't. But he said, once you do and it's out there, you can't stop it. Once it takes on a life of its own, you can't kill it. You don't want to, but you couldn't if you wanted to. So I'm sitting in my little office at home, out in Green Hills, one day, and a lot of times I would uh, ride out there in the morning and then come into town and maybe pitch songs or see what was going on on Music Row. I've gotten a, a Chevron book, and it had a story on the Chattahoochee River, and and I was uh. I was familiar with the Chattahoochee. Uh, Sidley Lanier, the poet, had written a poem called Song of the Chattahoochee that I remembered from school. And it does indeed form a great deal of the border between Alabama and Georgia. So I was familiar with it and I started thinking about it and I, I had an atlas there. All good songwriters have an atlas somewhere. So I got my atlas out. And I thought, I wonder how close Nuna in Georgia, which is where Alan's from, I wonder how close that is to the Chattahoochee. Well, it's pretty dang close. I get this little thing going, and and I had the first two lines. Way down yonder on the Chattahoochee, it gets harder than the hoochie-coochie. So I was going out on the road with Alan, and I just I put it in that notebook, and that's where I left it. So when we get out on the road, and I said, I got this, I got this thing started. See what you're thinking. He said, play me those two lines again. Way down yonder on the Chattahoochee, it gets hotter than the Hoochie Coochie. And he said, we laid rubber on a Georgia asphalt, got a little crazy, but we never got caught. And so, I mean, we were off and running then.
3: You got a little crazy. What What? what were you doing that you didn't get caught? Is this speeding on the asphalt? Well, yeah. Uh, uh, you guys used to race lay, cars? Do you know what
1: laden rubber is? Yeah.
3: Yeah. That's a.
1: You're doing uh, drag racing, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I look back. Some of the places we used to drag race, and it's like because the cars back then, they they were at least six cylinder, if not eight cylinder. Your daddy's car would probably his old Pontiac could probably do 120 or 30. So I came along during the era of the muscle cars, the GTOs and the super sports, and you know, and some people did get killed doing that. But we would we would drag race in places we really shouldn't have been doing that. Mm. But we finished it. You know, it's got a Cajun feel to it, and we finished it in Thibodeau, Louisiana. He showed it to the band at sound check. It was still pretty rough. God bless the band when the singer says, "Hey, I just wrote this a little while ago. Let's let's work it up," you know, because that's usually where you practice. You you do it in sound check a few times till you get comfortable with it. He said, "You know, this thing got a Cajun feel. We'll just do it tonight," and the band's like, "Oh, dear Lord." He did it, and the response was like. You know, nothing really. Pin drop. Yeah, yeah. it was like, what was that? Where was this? This was in Thibodeau, Louisiana. Thibodeau, Louisiana. Thibodeau, Louisiana. They'd
3: never heard the song
1: before. No, it's the first time anybody had heard it, you know. He did it in sound check, and about two or three hours later, he did it. He worked it into the show, and nobody cared. It's like, what's that? You know, so the next time, after it comes out, it was a little bit different story, you know. They they may love your album cuts, but they want to hear those songs on the radio, you know, usually the ones they've heard on the radio, the things sing along with or whatever. And I always wanted that one song that if they said, what do you do? And you say, uh, oh, I'm a songwriter. And they go, well, have you written anything I've heard? That's always the next question. And you go, well, do you listen to country music? And they go, oh, yeah. And then you give them your biggest hit and they said, I don't think I know that song. And it used to embarrass me, but I got to where I would say, "You lied to me because that song was number one in the country last week, and if you were listening to country music, you would know that song. I just got tired of being embarrassed, and I thought, I'll just embarrass you a little bit, you know because you you didn't tell me the truth, but I always wanted that one song that no matter where I was, if they had listened to country music for for two hours over the last Thirty years, they they might know that song, and it turned out to be an upbeat song. It turned out to be Chattahoochee, and that's okay. That's I'm not going to have a bigger one, and Alan's not either. That's his biggest song and mine. I went down to Australia to write with some artists, and uh, they, the lady at customs said, "What? Why are you here?" And I said, uh, "Well, I'm here to write songs. I'm a songwriter." She said, "Oh, have you written anything I might know?" And I said, uh, if you don't know Chattahoochee, you wouldn't know anything else probably. And she said, no. I said, way down yonder. And she said, oh, oh Chattahoochee. She said, oh, oh <laughs> yeah, yes, I know that song. I love that song. That song is just my biggest earning song, and I guess it always will be, thank God. We finished that song, Doug, and I believe he cut that song. He was going in the studio when we got back. And I'll be honest with you, because Alan and I would write a sad ballad. We were just happy to have another upbeat song like Neon Rainbow. And we had a couple of other ones, but we were pretty happy about that. So he cut it, and the album had gone to number two. It had fallen to number 15 with no bullet. When Chattahoochee and the video came out, the timing was just perfect. The album shot up to number one. The single sold half a million, and the album sold another four million. Thank Thank you, God. I had three other songs on the album, so. So,
3: Chattahoochee is an Indian word, or is that a Southern word that's made
1: up? Oh, I'm I'm sure I'm sure it's an Indian word. In, I don't, Indian
3: word, yeah. and can you tell me what a hoochie coochie is, <laughs> and why it gets hot?
1: Yeah. Okay. Actually, the hoochie coochie thing goes back to the to the blues days, kind of. There's an old uh, blue song called Hoochie Coochie Man. We started getting phone calls from all over the country, man. And Alan, being Alan, said, tell him to call Jim. You know, call Jim. He'll tell you I'm getting phone calls just about every day for a while from somewhere. And they said, what, what's a Hoochie Coochie? Well, I found out that means a lot more in some places. What well, I said, I'll tell you what it means to me and what it means to Alan. The fair comes to town every fall. And they always had these dancers, strippers. You had to be 18 to get in the tent. But they did a little dance out on the, and they were hoochie-coochie girls. They called them hoochie-coochie girls. And the dance they did was a hoochie-coochie. I said, you know, the big deal at school was if you could get in before you turned 18, you could go to school and brag about it the next day. And I said, it's a county fair strip show. That's all I could tell you in dance. A lot
3: about living and a little about love. Kind of what being a teenager and yeah. growing up is all about, huh?
1: Yeah. People are attracted to water. I found that out a long time ago. It, if they can't make it to the, to the beach, they'll go to the river or the lake, and they'll fish in the creek if they have to. But I think people just associated with that song, you know, it doesn't even— I've seen thousands of women singing along with it, and the part about where he takes her home early, it's like, I said, that, that might make the women mad. Well, no woman has ever said, well, you know, she wouldn't give it up, so he took her home. But it's funny. There's so many stories I've heard with that song. This couple, they had a little son, four-year-old boy in play school, and the teacher called him, and she said, could could, you, could y'all come in for a meeting? I want to talk to you about it. Your little boy. So they go in and the parents, they said, what has he done? You know, what what what's he doing? And she said, well, you know, I don't mean to imply anything, but he goes over at playtime every day. There's a little plastic guitar over there and he grabs that guitar and to the top of his voice, he starts singing, talking about cars and dreaming about women over and over and over. She thought he was a little pervert and they started laughing. They said, no, no. That's an Alan Jackson song that he loves. <laughs> the teacher thought the kid was perverted, I guess.
0: She was a flower for the taking.
2: Her beauty cut just like a knife. He was a banker for making. to a lover all his life. He bought her a mansion on a mountain with a formal garden and a lot of land. But paradise became her prison. That Georgia banker was a jealous man. Can see the fire in his eyes. You'd I would walk through hell on Sunday to keep
1: my rose in paradise.
3: So, Rose in Paradise, this was Waylon Jennings' mm-hmm. last number one Blessing song right. mm-hmm. before he passed away. Yep. Yeah. Tell me about
1: the song. His version came out in 87. Uh, actually, you had the first version. It was cut a couple of times before that. Randy Howard cut it, but it never got out. And then uh, Toy Caldwell cut it. So it'd been recorded twice, but never been released. That song, just from Waylon's version, is now almost 33 years old. And Doug, uh, there's rarely a week that goes by that somebody doesn't mention that song to me. It's just, uh, I've never seen anything like it. Even more so than Chattahoochee or anything else, young songwriters. They said, man, that song's the one that made me want to come to town and be a songwriter. And I said, well, I'm going to pray for you because I don't, I don't want to be a part of you coming here and starving to death, you know. Hope you got a good plan. But Stuart Harris and I were supposed to write one day, and we got together at the April Blackwood office. And we couldn't think of anything to write, which happened sometime. And so uh, we started telling ghost stories. And I told him about this lady in the early 1800s that had lived in the county where I'm from. She had had five wealthy husbands, and they all died mysteriously. Back in those days, you didn't have CSI, and there was no FBI lab. So they tried to pin a couple of murders on her, but it didn't stick. But she had five wealthy husbands, and she was supposedly the most beautiful lady in the county, just the prettiest woman around. And... I mean, I know where they're—I've been to those guys' graves. They're buried out behind a big house that one of them built for them, that is burned down. But the graves—but the gravestones are still back behind the house. And they say at one time there were five nails in the entryway, and each one of them's hat was hanging on a nail. I, I don't know about that. But it's a great story anyway. That and, house and is so, haunted.
3: That house is— Oh, up, yeah. That, I had some <laughs> it burned and, down, the house did.
1: Yeah, it did. It was haunted before it burned down. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> I had some friends who uh, moved in in there back in the '60s, and uh, I went to a, a New Year's Eve party there one time. And it's like this place is this place is spooky, you know. And they they told a few stories about things that happened. But then he started telling me some ghost stories from the Low Country, from South Carolina, where he was raised. And we did that for a while, and and then we went to lunch, and we came back, and neither one of us can remember where. It's like, well, let's let's write let's write a ghost song or whatever. Let's see what we can do. This story just kind of fell out over a couple of of hours. We decided to leave it kind of ambiguous at the end. I'm an old Henry fan, and and he was great with irony. You know, the lady and the tiger and the the gift of the magi. One of us or both of us said, let's leave it where we, you don't really know what happened to her. Let's just leave it like that. And so that's what we did. And we took it in and played it for our song plugger, Judy Harrison. And she's like, golly, where'd you boys go to lunch, you know? She loved it, and we demoed it. I actually sang the demo on it. And then one day, Loretta Lynn came in with a guy that worked at MCA for Jimmy Bowen to listen to songs, Don Lanier. And she played Loretta some songs for pitching to her. And she said, Loretta, I know this song is, is not for you, but I want you to hear the song the boys wrote she played rose in paradise and loretta went oh my lord you got to get that to Waylon." and i don't know if we just hadn't ever thought about that or not you know we really hadn't thought about it. she said you got to get that to whalen
3: why do you think loretta lynn thought that was a whalen song at that
1: point that's a good question i don't know i don't know what made her say Waylon. I would love to ask her that But question. you all were
3: like, that's a great idea. <laughs> yes, like,
1: what do we think of that, you know? <laughs> Just the thought of getting a Waylon Jennings cut, we're like, yes, we'll hold it for a year, when normally you would not you would not do that. It was kind of like when I wrote songs with Alan Jackson, they would say, do you want to do a demo on these? And I'm like, no, this guy's going to get a record deal. Don't worry about it. I want him to do them. Because the first time we sat down together, I thought, this guy can write and he can sing. So Don Lanier plays it for Waylon. And he said, "Man, he said, I, you know, I just finished that album, and he said, I'm done with it. But he said, if you'll tell those boys to put that song under a rock, I swear I will cut that song next year when I do my next album. Do you know how many times they tell us they're going to do something nah. they don't? <laughs> if I had every cut I'd been promised, who's who's worse, the artist or
3: the label or the uh, you know oh, the, they, the, it's the publishing a, it's house. A conspiracy?
1: All it's, of them. <laughs> All
3: of them will tell All you them, it's the same." Yeah. Promise that they're not going to keep, huh?
1: I had a song on hold one time for a year and a half, and then they didn't cut it. So what happens in a situation like that is an artist hears your song or their producer hears your song and says, don't play that for anybody else. So I want to cut that or I want my artist to cut that song. A good analogy would be if you sold bread and somebody or you sold uh, individual ceramics or something and they took one of your prized ceramics and said, take that one off the shelf so nobody else can see it and want to buy it. In other words, you take it off the shelf. It's not for sale anymore or not available if you're talking about a song. And so they may hold it for six months, and then they'll go in and cut an album, and you never heard anything. And it's like, oh, no, we decided to pass on that. Or they wait till the the time comes, and they go, no, we're not going to. We're not going to cut that song after you've taken it off the market. So thanks a lot for that. But that's just the way the music business works. And a thousand things can happen from the time they hear that song and say, I love it, I'm going to record it. A thousand things can happen and it doesn't get recorded. And any writer that's been here a while will tell you the same thing. It's happened. It happens to all of us.
3: Yeah. Art sometimes has no timetable. How do you know when a song is done?
1: I just know. There's a, there's a seven-letter word that I despise, and it's called rewrite. <laughs> I despise that word. And so even from the beginning, I, I spent more time with them than anybody. I, you know, I'm not going to spend two weeks writing a song and play it for somebody who's never had a song recorded, and they tell me it's got all kind of mistakes. I don't want to hear that. I would play it for people that I respected their opinion that I knew that they knew what a good song was or what a great song was and what a bad song was. Curly Putman was my first mentor, and and he said, man, turn that thing every way you can and and make sure you got it the best you can you can get it. I tried to do that. I very seldom had a publisher tell me I needed to rewrite a line or something because I'd already spent hours with it. You know, they might not have got a line at first. I'm like, wait a minute. I've spent two weeks with this song, and you just heard it for the first time. Listen to it again, and this time, you shouldn't have to explain a song, but sometimes people don't get it right off the bat. And it's like, you listen to that another time or two, and you tell me if I need to change it. I I very seldom had to do a rewrite because I edited and edited. Oh, I did it much slower. We wrote it much slower, but when Waylon got in the studio, they picked it up to where it is. We did not originally write it that fast. So now when I play it out, I have to try to play as fast as Waylon did, you know. I guess after Chattahoochee and Neon Rainbow's probably been my biggest, biggest song, I guess. Big song
3: for Waylon, too.
1: Yeah. Yeah, bless his heart. I'm glad I got to see him do it. And one of the coolest things, they wouldn't do a video on it. We were getting phone calls going Well, this She did. Same thing I had before with Hoochie Coochie. Now I'm getting phone calls and Stewart is, too, going, well, did he kill her or what? And we're like, you know what? We don't know. Uh, she may be buried in a gardener. She might have left with a gardener. He might have killed them both. There's just all kind of possibilities. He might have hired a good-looking gardener just to tempt her. You know, we don't know. We just wrote the song. So we're getting all these phone calls, and it's like, man, we just, we just don't know. And people talked about writing a screenplay. Nobody ever did. But. They didn't do a video, which was kind of disappointing because videos were really big
3: right then. Yeah, back then.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, they were huge. And they said, if we do a video, we'll have to give it away. What happened to her? And I said, well, if you're creative enough, you won't. But anyway, they did not do it. So the coolest thing that happened after that, Chet Atkins did a Cinemax special call, Certified Guitar Picker. And Waylon does Rose in Paradise on that show. Michael McDonald is playing piano. Terry McMillan's playing harmonica. Mark Knopfler's playing guitar. David Hungate's playing bass. Lou Harris and the Everly Brothers are singing harmony. That's a band from heaven. Yeah. Since we didn't have a video, that's pretty cool. To that have, is a pretty to cool, have cool Emily video have. Yeah, and Mark Knopfler playing and uh, Chip. You know, I mean, gee whiz.
3: So anything else on Rose in Paradise by Waylon Jennings? You must have had a number one party. Did we talk about that? Yes, we
1: did. We had, uh, you know, that's long about the time they started putting banners. I mean, country music exploded when Garth came along. Yeah. And Clint Black and, oh gosh, Vince finally hit and Trisha Yearwood. And every week it was just, it was some new artist. And they were all good. Some of them were great and some of them were good. Really good the Joe Diffies that maybe didn't reach the the heights that Alan and Garth did. But they had a big banner, you know, with our names on it, on the tree building and the, and the bus stop uh, benches and stuff, you know. So it was it was pretty cool. I have to tell you this story. Garth is always so nice to me. I was with ASCAP when I first came to town. I was with BMI and then ASCAP right after I got to town. But Bob Doyle became Garth's manager. He was at ASCAP he signed me. Fast forward to about 88, I guess. He becomes Garth's publisher manager. And so he calls me one day and he says, can you come down to the offices? And I said, yeah, I'll be down there in a little while. So I go down he said, I want you to listen to this. He played me this new guy named Garth Brooks. And one of the songs was If Tomorrow Never Comes, since you brought Ken up, yeah. Uh, if tomorrow never comes, and he played me a couple of other things, and he said, "What do you think?" And I said, "Gosh," I said, "The songs are great," and I said, "I really like his voice too." And he said, "Well, that's why I called you. You want to? You want to write with him?" I said, "Let me get my book. Let me call you back, Bob." I said, "I'm writing a lot right now with this guy named Alan Jackson that I really believe in. We're we're writing a good bit, but I I'll, I'll get back to you." I didn't get back to him. I didn't get back to him, and the next thing I know, Garth Brooks is the biggest thing. <laughs> and the he's never
3: I, done one of your songs.
1: No, <laughs> no, but and and the same thing happened to Alan. I won't mention any writers' name, but there were some writers that didn't want to write with Alan, and he's never cut one of their songs either. <laughs> so you know, there's yeah, that, it's just but random. but I got to tell you, man, Garth has always he's never been anything. He kn- he knows I passed up the chance to write with him, and I really wish I had. Just to have one song with Garth Brooks,
3: he has a special connection with the audience. You know, he
1: he literally at the event
3: the other night, uh, took, let everybody who wanted to take a selfie with him. And, yeah, my wife and, got a my but, wife got know,
1: I got a great picture of her with Garth. Yeah. yeah, it was
3: all the wives that wanted the picture with. Oh yeah, him, you know, Not, it's
1: like she said, "Don't you want?" I said, "I have a picture of me and Garth. <laughs> He's got his arm around me." Around my shoulder, and I got mine around his. I said, But uh, no, I already have that. I did ask you if you have anything on the shelf and what voice you want to. You know, there's this new kid, and the chances of this happening are probably zero, but you never know. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. He's a guy named Cody Johnson. He's one of the best voices. I remember the day I walked into the tape room at Tree Publishing Company, which is. Sony now, and I heard this voice, and I stopped in the middle of the room, and I said, oh, my goodness, who is that? And they said, it's a guy named Ronnie Dunn. He just won the Wrangler contest or something, and I went, wow, wow. Well, we know what happened there. You got that same feeling. Bruce. I got that same feeling. I would had that feeling just a few times. When I first met Travis Tripp, I thought, this guy. He's going to be a star. But even before that, I met Randy Travis about 1982. And we wrote a couple of things together. And uh, I thought, man, if this guy ever gets a chance. So in 87, he finally got a chance and sold 4 million albums or whatever and uh, opened the door for the rest of the Hillbillies. And uh, so I had that feeling with him. I had that feeling with Alan, Travis Tritt, and Trisha Yearwood. What song
3: would you like Cody to uh, record there's a, there's be a
1: song there's a song that I had forgotten about in my catalog and it's called how far do I have to go I was going through my catalog the other night and and it's like man I can't believe I forgot that song but but once it starts moving away from there these songs that would have worked in the 90s you can't get those cut now well, that's why people like Bob McDill and others. It's like you know what, I'm done. I don't write. I don't write those type of songs, and they don't want what I'm but, writing. Yeah. So I mean, Bob told me that he said people I, are
3: people are willing to take chances. And, yeah. And you know, I think and I know it changes. You know, the internet has no barriers, and you don't have to mm-hmm. you know listen to what radio says on the internet. You can listen to whatever podcast you want. (laughs) And you know what's good
1: about that is uh, you don't have some guy sitting in an office somewhere figuring out what 50 radio stations are going to be playing that day. You can decide for yourself. I talked to a disc jockey. I met him Monday night, and he's from Canada, and he said, man, he said, it's just not right. He said, I'm old school. He came up back when they would get the records in, they'd play them, and if people called in, uh, they would— Continue to play them, and if they if they didn't call in saying they liked them, then maybe they didn't play them anymore.
2: Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16 ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90 lean ground sirloin for 4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca Cola, Pepsi, or Seven Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone.